All right. Today we've got on none other than Mr. Ryan Carrier. Let's hear a little bit about himself before we jump into this full conversation. My name is Ryan Carrier. I am the executive director of For Humanity, and I just want to say thank you for for having me on the podcast today. It's it's fun and exciting, and it's great to talk about the the things that we're doing at For Humanity. We are a uh, 501c3, which is a tax exemption in the United States, but it basically means we're a nonprofit, we're a charity, and all of the work that we're doing is done through volunteers and contributors. And so it's um, it's fun, exciting, invigorating to to interact with all of these people who have all of these passions and cares about these challenges that we're facing around AI ethics, around the use of artificial intelligence, automation, um, information, data. Uh, you know, it's it's really cutting edge stuff. And so it's great, exciting. And I'm glad to be here talking with you today. So for those of you that are new and have never heard us before, welcome. And for those that are tuning in again, it's glad to have you back. This is Are You a Robot? A series that aims to tackle some of the greatest questions stemming from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is by grabbing the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with me so that we can find out if there are any best practices that we can start to utilize as we move forward and AI continues to grab more market share in our daily lives. The next thing I will mention is that we have a Slack community. So the conversations that happen here in this podcast do not finish here. Please, if you like the words that we are saying in the next hour and some change, jump into the Slack community. There are a great group of people that are much smarter than myself that are answering questions. They are very kind with how and what they do. So You've got the access to all kinds of different experts. Take advantage of it. Jump in the Slack community. You can find the link below. The last thing I will mention is that we have an incredible sponsor for this Are You a Robot podcast. Ethics Grade is doing some wonderful stuff. And this month, they launched the product to be able to go through and test the different AI ethical standards of many different companies. So if you're looking to know the ethical standards between Tesla and Toyota or Alibaba and AWS, all of the AI ethics, you can compare and contrast on their website. They're really hyper-focused on this AI ethics benchmarking. So I encourage you to go check them out. And if you want to get your own assessment for your company on how you're doing with the AI ethics, you can reach out to them. Check out the website. It's all linked below. And now let's get into it with Ryan. Are you a robot? All right, Ryan. Well, welcome to the show and thank you for joining us. This is really, really exciting for me because I have been hearing about For Humanity uh, through Shay, who I think you work with quite closely, and then also from Charles, who has partnered up with you all. So now getting to talk to you for me is, uh, is very exciting stuff. And I want to dive into a lot of what you are doing there and what your motivations behind it are, uh, how you feel like it's going. Um, really, I think that's that's a great one to look at, like how you think we're doing all in all. Yeah. And as far as AI and trust and, and all that goes, but maybe we should start at the beginning and give people a little bit of background about who you are and what you came from, because I know you have a cool story behind it. Sure. So uh, I had a 25-year finance career, and it was 2016, and I was winding up my hedge fund, uh, looking around at kind of what the next act should be. Um, and interestingly, I had I 
started to build a business plan that I can't, I can't describe in any other fashion other than it was a step one to the matrix. Um, it was it was a way for drawing people into electronic lives and, and tying that together with real life. And as I thought about it, as I was putting that plan together, I, I really had this bit of an epiphany that was like, is that the side of history you want to be on? And um, the answer was a clear no. And I was looking around uh, at, at what I should be doing, and my boys were four and six at the time. And I was thinking about the future impact of artificial intelligence and automation on their lives. And I got scared. I'll be, <clears throat> be really honest with you. I, I, I got scared because, not because I'm anti-technology, not because this is Luddite or anything like that. From a risk management perspective, which is my 25-year finance career, um, I saw on, people only talking about AI is going to solve this problem and automation is going to solve this problem and more data is going to solve this problem. And I know that there's pros and cons to all of this. It's the nature of risk. And so honestly, I felt compelled, just absolutely compelled. I started a nonprofit. I've done it for four years with no revenue, no, no backing just trying to do the right things for people. And so the mission of For Humanity is very simple. It's to examine and analyze the downside risk associated with AI and automation and try to mitigate it. Mm. And if we can mitigate, if we control those risks, then we can get the best possible result for humanity. Thus, this big, huge name of the organization, that's who we work for. And if we do our jobs reasonably well, then most of humanity, I don't pretend like we're going to get everybody, unfortunately, but we're trying to work for this large body of people vis-a-vis machines, vis-a-vis corporations and so on. And the great part about that is it keeps us very focused. You know, we can always ask ourselves, is this the best thing for people? Mm. And so that's, that's kind of the, the genesis story, if you will. Well, was there some kind of trigger that made you like you, you talk about how you were coming in this transition and you really saw lots of people saying, wow, this is going to fix so much of our problems. But did you see the downside in a very clear way, like an actual trigger that made you say, well, if we have more of that, this is not going to be very helpful? There were two things. Um, many people will have seen, or at least in this space, many people will have seen the um, the work that Boston Dynamics is doing, which is amazing. But what it what it highlights is the 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 power and the advancement, the agility, the ability to operate functionally and fully autonomously their machines and their robots. It's it's increasing at a very rapid rate, um, and so that's. Um, you know, that is absolutely one of, of those catalysts. Um, and uh, the other is, uh, um, uh, and I'm trying to think of his last name. I went to look it up as we're talking about it. Sam, um, oh, shoot, he's a famous uh, podcaster uh, out of California, and it's killing me that I can't think of who it is. Um, maybe we should cut is and I should done? find yeah. it. <laughs> is he a, is, does he have to do with machine learning? He, he, he sort of does. Uh, Sam Agnabbit. It's even on my website probably. Hold on. Um, <laughs> but, but anyway, he did a whole talk about the implications of, of some of these things. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And mm. you know, he, he was talking about the implications of it. And from my perspective, I was like, well, what are we doing about it? Mm-hmm. And that's that. Those two things triggered me to say, and and my boys, honestly, for my boys, um, being four and six at the time, it's what what can I do to solve these problems? And so for two three years, I, I wrote a lot of things. I, I think you were reading some of them on yeah. on my blog post, kind of all over the place, thinking about all the key issues, whether it's future of work or technological unemployment or ownership of data. And the one that we settled on that was kind of the most practical, the most implementable, is this idea of independent audit of AI systems. Mm-hmm. And it comes from this background that I have of 25 years of, of, of finance. In finance, we have a 50-year track record of building this a needed infrastructure of trust. And, and the example that I give you is when third parties 
audit firms for financials, financial accounting, financial reporting. The rest of us in finance, when we receive that information, we don't think, oh, this isn't trustworthy. What's wrong with it? How do we fix it? We take that information and we use it. And that's yeah, what we refer to. Yeah. we Well, and we refer to it as an infrastructure of trust. Mm. And it's because we know how the mechanism works. We, we can identify the rules. We know that the auditor is not incentivized to, to assert compliance where compliance doesn't exist. And that they're incentivized to actually make sure that compliance is there, right? Because they wear a lot of downside risk. And so that infrastructure of trust, we want to bring that to our AIs and our autonomous systems. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's a great way of going about it. And you said something really important there is that the most implementable one right now that we can actually use and put into, like, there is a way for you to go into a company and do this. Right. And it's not just talking about what is a possibility in the future or it's it's action over words. And I really appreciate that piece of it. And then, like you said, I mean, this was one of my questions that I was going to ask about for the financial sector and or I look at cars and I look at how many regulations and how much you need to pass in order to make a car. Right. Because cars are very dangerous. And if they're used the wrong way, they can be even worse off for a lot of people. And so this is something that I am wondering, why do you feel that regulation and the idea of audit auditing is not widespread right now when it comes to machine learning and AI? Um, there's a various set of answers to that. Number one, much of the development in the space has come out of the U.S., um, whether we're talking about Google, um, Tesla, uh, Facebook, etc. And we tend to be as offhandish with our governance and our, our regulatory oversight as, as most more so than most jurisdictions in the world. And so that's part of it. Another part of it is is that there's a culture of freewheeling, ungoverned, we'll govern ourselves that's been built into the whole construction here. Um, And unfortunately, that's nice. Um, That helps things to grow. Uh, This idea of of move fast and break things um, has has really dominated this culture for a while. Uh, The real difficult part of that is, is there's no governance whatsoever. There's no consideration for downside risk. Um, there's no, and, and, and this, is, this is a concept that, that you may not have come across before. It's, and it's very problematic with the way technology develops. Technology is an autocracy. And what I mean by that is anyone can do whatever they want. There's no overriding societal government governance to this. And there's a, there's a fantastic example of this, which is editing genes with humans. The whole world, the whole world, I mean, how often does the whole world agree on something, right? Mm-hmm. The whole world agreed that sh- we should not gene edit humans. And yet, a researcher out of Rice in, in Texas uh, and, and, two, and a couple of researchers out of China decided to do it anyway. Yeah. And they brought a human to term They've been uh, convicted. They're going to jail. It's only for three to four years. Will they be rock stars when they come out because they've done this? But they gene edited a baby and brought it to term. No governance, no oversight. That is an autocracy. And the the problem is, is we love it. As humans, we love it, right? Because whatever it is, it's new. It's interesting. We want to use that technology. And so there's a seductiveness to this. And nowhere in this equation have we talked about what the downside risks are and tried to manage those and tried to, 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 to build that risk management into the process. It's a huge problem. And so to get back to your original question, we're playing catch up. Um, yeah. All of this was built without regulatory oversight, without a care for compliance by design. And, and the way we look at the world is ethics, bias, privacy, trust, 
and cybersecurity. We want to take all of those aspects and ensure that any time in a system that a human is impacted in any of those five categories, then we want to be building a set of criteria around that. A lot of times it's adapting existing law into audit rules. Sometimes it's it's new stuff because the law hasn't caught up. Mm-hmm. But we're adapting this criteria in a crowdsourced way through consensus building to try to identify reasonable ways to govern this these these works, these technologies, and so on. Does that yeah, make sense? Completely. And when I was reading some of your blog posts and you talked about these five key areas, I found it interesting that you included cybersecurity in there. And I was wondering if you could like dive into that a little bit more. Is that just because the hackings that have been happening and you feel like there needs to be some way to cover our backs on that? Or what was it that made you, because the other ones, I think you said privacy, bias, ethics, and trust. Those for me, it's like, yeah, that those all fit, right? But then when you say cybersecurity, I was like, what, where, where's that coming from? Right. And now it's a, it's a great question. And in, even in this world of, that's sometimes called AI ethics that, mm-hmm. that, that sort of I operate in or, or for humanity operates in, um, cybersecurity is not often there. Number one, because it's an older discipline. I mean, not a lot older, but it's been around for an extra 10 years. And so it's already developed that, you know, they have their own certifications, they have their own processes. So that's number one. But number two, um, the reason we include it uh, in the system is if you can build privacy, uh, privacy preserving solutions, you can build systems that are, have, have disposed of or managed or mitigated bias. But if you don't protect it from attack, if you don't protect it from outside harm and manipulation, what the heck is the point? Hmm. If, you, if, if you think you've created something that's private and privacy per, per, protective, but then anybody can break in and grab that stuff, you haven't. So it's just natural that, that cybersecurity is included in this conversation because you're trying to manage the risk hmm. around a holistic system. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, I get it completely. And it's it's very true. Like if you're creating a system that has these four pillars and like you said, but the cybersecurity isn't there and somebody can just go in, it's like you leave the front door wide open and somebody can come in and take whatever they want. And so there's, a, I can't remember exactly who I was talking to, but it is a very difficult thing to make sure that your machine learning models are secure. And it is very easy to replicate those and get like the whole thing, because it is such a new area, right? The, The whole thing with securing your machine learning or your AI is also very new. You talked about cybersecurity is, is a bit older and it's true as far as, the standardization we have and the audits and all of that, I see that as being, yes, there are processes that are put in place. But when you look at the idea of making sure AI is secure, that's a whole nother beast. And so how do you go about that? Um, Carefully, (laughs) thoroughly, thoughtfully, and recognizing that by definition, the work that we do is transparent, it's rules-based, we're going to put it out there, okay? Mm -hmm. Anytime you do that with a system, the the people who want to be malfeasant and commit commit fraud, they know how to beat your system. So the systems that we create are about willful compliance. If someone wants to be a bad actor, they will be a bad actor. And the example that I give for that is, is, you know, we're going to put out these rules. It's raising the floor of compliance, right? But if you want to have the best possible cybersecurity, you keep those things secret. Mm -hmm. You don't tell people about it, right? So it's the opposite of our approach, but that's actually best practices, when it comes to cybersecurity, because then those malfeasant uh, players or bad actors, they don't necessarily know what they're up against or what the rules are and how to defeat them. Um, so what we try to manage is kind of the more basic and generic. If somebody wants to be a bad actor, they're going to beat the system, unfortunately. 
that's the, the nature of the game. But we look at things, and, and to give you an example, um, you know, it's not just data breach, I come in physically and I grab stuff. A, a new one is that I've got, and I've developed these artificial intelligence solutions, right? They're taking data in from the outside. Well, people are beginning to be smart enough to do what we call data entry point attacks. Mm -hmm. They figure out how your model works and they flood it with bad data or twisted yeah. data or biased data, model inversion or, or model avoidance um, and, and, and other kind of data entry point attacks to mess with how your AI operates. And so you have to have this awareness that these things are going on. You have to, to, to look around and have a broad community that says, here's the new threats or here's, you know, we just saw this and everybody's like, well, we've never seen that before. What do we do? Right. And you start to solve it. That's the best mechanism that I know of. It's not perfect. We can't pretend that it's perfect, um, but it's the best balance of willful compliance, transparency, and creating a system that that recognizes that there's the haves and the have-nots, right? The the haves can do whatever they're going to do to protect their systems. Yeah. Well, then there's lots of other entities that are barely, you know, surviving, right? And to to overlay this huge compliance burden on them, well, that's that's pointless, right? You you kill them off right there. So yeah. you you want to have this this spectrum of 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 progress and what what can be done to protect the most people in the easiest possible fashion. That's really interesting to think about. And that's something that has come up and I've asked it a few different times uh, when we talk about this subject is how can a small startup that is, like you said, they're just working on getting product market fit. And if their product is heavily tied to machine learning, it's very expensive. It's much more expensive to create a product that's tied to AI or machine learning than it is to create a software product because of all of the overhead that you need from the infrastructure to the data scientists to the, the tooling and everything that goes into it and just making sure that it works 90% of the time is another gigantic task. And so... If you add on to it, like this idea that you were, you're talking about, like if you're adding on to it another regulatory burden, then it's going to be very difficult for these companies to actually get off of the ground. And I remember I was talking with Dan Jeffries and his whole argument was, yeah, but you know what's... Because uh, I told him, hey man, like what, you, what you're saying sounds incredible, but it also sounds very expensive. And his thing was... You know what is really expensive is when AI fucks up and you kill someone. <laughs> That's really expensive. Like what Uber did, that right. is expensive, right? So yep. I still grapple with that. And maybe you can break down a little bit more like the spectrum that you have and how you view it as, as more of a spectrum rather than everyone needs to comply to a certain degree. Yeah, and, and you've highlighted one of the kind of starting points, which is the really expensive part is when these things go bad. So there's a certain element of, I don't care how expensive it is, you have to do it. However, I'm also a 48-year unabashed capitalist. And so part of, part of my thinking is, is we know that a lot of the new innovation is coming from even these small teams. Mm -hmm. And so what can we do to enable compliance by design for small teams. And so part of, part of the thought process that we have at For Humanity is maybe we should be in the business of helping to provide these solutions, almost like a public good, right? Can we provide diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback so that as people are building and designing, maybe they don't have the connections. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't have the relationships. Maybe they're sitting in the middle of East nowhere, you know, United States or, or UK, and everyone around them is middle-aged white, right? Yeah. And they just can't get the kind of inputs that they need. Well, maybe a group like For Humanity ought to be building it for them and saying, here we are, we'll be happy to provide this as a public good as a charitable service to help them overcome these issues because it's the best thing for humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So we begin to think about 
we can put these rules in place and, and we're building them because we know that they're the right set of rules, criteria, process, and so on. Okay. So that's our only thought process when we create the rules. Once they're there, now we have to think about, okay, what have we just done to people? What have we just done yeah. to small firms? And now how can we help them use this compliance or abide by this compliance or accomplish this set of rules, build it into their system um, in a cost effective, meaningful way that doesn't diminish the value of the process. And so we're, we're thinking about these kind of things and, and wondering if that's not the future of For Humanity to help aid and enable through public good, through the creation of these kind of goods and services to help satisfy the need for governance, oversight, good process, compliance by design. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. And then that would give them a differentiating factor 100%. because they are in line with this. And that kind of leads into the next question that I wanted to ask, which was around, and, and I talked to Shay Brown about this quite a bit of, and the idea is how do you know when a company is actually interested in doing this or if it's just lip service, if it's just marketing where they want to get it so they can say, hey, look, we're the good guys here. It's, it's all lip service. It really is. And I don't, I don't mean that negatively, even if a company, so, so the business roundtable, which is the leaders, the CEOs at the biggest two, 200 or 300, whatever number it is these days, companies in the world. And they all got together last summer or two, no, two summers ago and said, companies shouldn't just be about profits. Hmm. Nothing's come out of that. Nothing's changed. Right. And that's because of the way the system's built, right? We build companies that are shareholder value. That's all they should do. And I don't mind them being true to that, right? So set that aside for a second. Then you get the next group of people who may choose to do this because it's a differentiating factor. And that's great, but they're not going to change the world, right? They're not going to be enough groups to, to make a meaningful difference. And, and so what that gets us to is our hope, our effort is to mandate it for all. Mm-hmm. So what, the, the way we would think about it, the comparison I would give you, is in 1973, the financial industry came together and created a set of accounting rules. In the U.S., it's GAAP accounting. In, in the U.K. and most, most international companies, it's IFRS. But because they agreed those rules across the industry, the regulators adopted those rules very quickly. In, in the U.S., so they created this in 73. By 75, the SEC mandated that all publicly traded companies had to follow GAAP accounting. We hope for the same result. Here's the problem, or here's the process that we'll have to go through. When they did that, and it created this huge accounting industry, um, for 20 years, uh, people would come in, the, the auditors would walk in and companies would react the same way. It's like, oh, it's the auditors. Like it's got, it's a bad doctor's Throw them in the corner. Yeah. yeah it, like in the room without air conditioning. It was going to be painful. And, and, you know, the people who, who saw what were, you know, like, oh, this is the worst six weeks of my life. Like, yeah. you know, uh, for, so for 20 years, that was the case. But then the Treadway Commission came along and created the COSO system of internal risk controls and management. And so now when an auditor walks in, it's a very different experience. We walk them up to the third floor conference room. We lock the door. We slide food under the door three times a day for six weeks. And we pump data at them, right? We pump the information they need to do their jobs because our whole system is built compliance by design. And that's the same place that we have to get to with our AIs, with our autonomous systems in the areas of ethics bias, privacy, trust, and cybersecurity. We have to make them compliance by design. And so the hope is that even if it's painful, even if it's hard to do in the first two, three, four years, that we don't have to go through 20 years of getting to this process, right? That we mandate that everyone will follow this set of rules and then it will be built into the system compliance by design. And the cool thing is at For Humanity, we already see those groups coming in, seeing our rules, saying, can we use those? Can we license them? Can we put them into our systems so that we can build compliance by design 
from the outset, solving those problems at the beginning. Well, I want to talk a little bit uh, about those rules and the way that you set it up, like the how and the actions and all of that. But before we do, I think about the blog post that you wrote and you talked about Enron and how a lot of people pointed the fingers at the auditors of Enron saying, it's their fault. Why didn't they catch this? And I wonder about you and your position and how much responsibility is falling on your shoulders and how easy it is for a company to say, look, we passed all our audits. It's not our fault that things went haywire. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a wonderful example. And it's actually the exception that proves the rule. So post-Enron and post-Worldcom, which are the two most famous accounting scandals uh, in, in recent history, um, Sarbanes-Oxley in the United States made it clear that you had to have three components. If you're the auditor, you can't be the service provider and the remediator, the one building the systems that work. Okay? If you're the service provider and the auditor, you can't be the one – or service provider and remediator, then you can't do the audit. And by, oh, by the way, if you're either of those things, then you can't make the rules. Hmm. So from our perspective for humanity, we just want to make the rules. We want to do that in a crowdsourced fashion, and we can talk about that in, in a minute. Okay. So what you're left with is, well, how do we best ensure this independence? And independence is a real word with real legal meaning. And so an auditor can only get paid to do the job of audit. And on top of that, they wear the liability if they, if they have assured compliance where it doesn't exist. And so actually in the Enron case, what people don't always realize is Arthur Anderson was a big five accounting firm. It yeah. no longer exists because its liability was so massive to the fraud they helped perpetrate with the leadership at Enron that their firm no longer exists. So – would you prefer to avoid those kind of issues in advance? Yes. Do we do that 99.9999% of the time with independent auditors? Yes, we do. Can you still have somebody who wants to be a bad actor? Yes, you can because the rules are transparent. So that's, that's how the system operates. Um, again, not a perfect system, a very good system, a very tried and true system uh, where the auditor only conducts audit and their only upside from, a, from asserting compliance is that they get to do the business again next year and that they wear downside risk if they have a, assured compliance where it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. does, does that answer the question, would you say? Yeah, completely. Okay. And I think for me, I look at it and I say like, more power to you because like you said, it's the Wild West out there and you guys are, you're taking on a lot of responsibility here trying to do this. And so it's great to see because somebody has to do it, right? Like it needs to happen. And that's obvious. We can all agree on that. And so I'm wondering, like, do you see it being something that as you build out the framework and the framework is there and the auditing is there and it's clear how it's audited, or how audits should take place, is this something that will then be adopted by those big five auditing firms? And will it just be another thing that they offer to their, uh, to their companies or their clients? Or is this something that's going to be specific to For Humanity? How is that going to work? Sure. So for humanity, ideally, we will just make the rules and we will do it in a global consensus-driven, crowdsourced kind of process that's really grassroots. Anyone can come into For Humanity. Their voice is the same as anyone else's voice, whether they work at Google or whether they're just, you know, an academic someplace who has an opinion. Um, all of that crowd and critique and comment and process is built to, into our system without hopefully or minimizing any sort of corporate or, or biased uh, input. Um, we would then just make the rules and license the rules out to audit firms all around the world. Some of those might be the big four. I can absolutely see PwC or Deloitte or, or EY building teams 
they're already auditors, right? And now they can build teams that do these audits. But let's be clear. The difference between operating um, accounts receivable and long-term notes and cash management is very different than what's required in ethics, bias, privacy, trust, and cybersecurity. It's a different set of skills. And in fact, one of the big four's head of global assurance said to me 18 months ago, and I'm sure they're getting better at this, but his words specifically to me were, we're not qualified to do this. Huh. And, and here's the thing. I'm not sure anybody's qualified to do this yet. It's very multidisciplinary, and it's a big problem for us in the sense that we have to educate we have to teach people this cross current of some legal side of things where the relative to like privacy law, GDPR, uh, you know, bias and, and statistics. That's, you know, data scientists, you yeah. know, they get masters and bachelors focused just on that. Ethics, you know, we're, we're talking about sociologists and philosophers and, you know, softer uh, science compared to like a data science, but they overlap. And then you have all the, the, the mechanical side of trust and building these machines, building AIs, building deep learning and GANs, and then finally cybersecurity experts, which is a whole degree unto itself, right? So you've got this massive multidisciplinary team, and absolutely, people can pull together those, those teammates and begin to be able to do this, but then you've got to learn the body of work. Right? What is the criteria that we've laid out for all these rules? So this is going to be a process. It's going to be an education. But what I would tell you is it's, it's going to be the audit firms, but there's going to be a lot of disruption too. There's going to be a lot of smaller firms who are building up compliance by design. They see this faster. They can build the systems and embed the criteria that we're creating in the system at the outset so that they can essentially automate compliance in both the design, development, and then processing or operational phase. Um, so uh, it's going to be a process. This does not happen overnight. I wish it would, yeah. <laughs> but it's not. Well, that's such a huge point that you make about how wide of a spectrum you need and just the net that you have to be able to, like you said, Nobody's really ready for this right now because you could be a great data scientist who also ponders and is a philosopher, right? But you're still not catching a lot of these other parts that you laid out, which yeah. is that legal side or the cybersecurity side. And those are very technical. Like you said, people go to school for years or decades to master those. So right. you see it more as teams coming together to be able to audit this. It's not, it's not going to be like a unicorn type person who can see the whole framework and say, okay, this, this works within this area. It's like you're going to have your legal auditor that works very tightly with the data scientist and the cybersecurity expert. Yeah. And, and we've seen it already. We, we honestly, we've seen it already. Just even inside for humanity, as we prepare to to you know introduce this to the world, some of the people who've come together to provide the input, they're like, well, why don't we team up? And so you get a testing firm joining with an attorney. Nice. Um, you get a you get a, a data scientist joining with a, a legal firm or, or 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 an attorney who can provide that that kind of background. You get uh, we have a, a seminar coming up in. Uh, next week, basically, that talks all about people who've studied philosophy, right? They have okay. these, these very soft, like, what do I do with it kind of degrees. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean, it's, you know, there's, no one hires a philosopher, right? Yeah. But yet people still study it because it's valuable, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of what we're doing in this, this session is there's this whole community of philosophers who are saying, well, how do I take these good values, these good ways of thinking, this good process that we have, and apply it into businesses. And that's, yeah, that's actually the entire nature of the, the hour and 45 minutes is we're going to talk about how philosophy can be turned into applied ethics and what applied ethics means inside of corporations moving forward. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of different um, sets of skills. Maybe someday people will begin to teach this in a multidisciplinary way. And, and so I kind of dabbled, but I'm never yeah. going to, you know, have exposure to all five and be a cyber expert mm -hmm. or be the legal expert. And, and I really want to be a expert, you know, deep knowledge, right? It's just impossible. It's not how we're built. So we'll see teams built. 
we'll see a lot of systems built to 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 hold on to all of this and increase leverage, right? Because it's hard to put these teams together. If you can systematize your work, well, then you can put it in 10 places where a team can only be in one or two, right? Can you break that down a little bit more, the systems idea and how you see that playing out? So it really depends, and we'd have to get into the nitty gritty of the of the criteria itself, but we do see the ability to systematize all of the compliance with the criteria. Now, systematize might mean that the system, you, you know, you're building a new system and the system says, stop, you're at this phase and your algorithmic risk committee, the team overseeing this, they need to stop and think about cognitive bias. We use the terms exam, examine and analyze your design for cognitive bias. Well, there's over 300 cognitive biases out there. Hmm. And they're very soft kind of things in a lot of cases. So it's not like we can create a system that goes, do, 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 you know, and yeah. sorry, I'm using my hands. So that, that doesn't work on, a, on, a, on, a, on an audio podcast, but which goes through, you know, sort of point by point by point and, and figures out, you know, did we deal with cognitive bias? No. What the system is going to say is stop. Think about the cognitive bias there. Pull in diverse inputs and multi-stakeholders. Have a discussion and write down that you had a discussion. And if you find some ways to mitigate these cognitive biases with risk management, implement them. Do them. Show us that you did that, right? All of that gets recorded into the system. And for us, that's a criteria. And we go, check. You know, you've at least taken the time to think about these risks, these impact to genuine humans from the system that we're building. And have we thought about it in as best a possible way? And oh, by the way, even if there's bias left, we don't believe in fully mitigating bias in this example, mm -hmm. right? Do the best you can. And at the end, disclose it. Disclosure, transparency, shining a light on these things. That's and, and you know what? What might happen? This is the way our world works, right? You may not have been able to figure it out, but the the the, the woman over here does, and she sees that th these things are being disclosed all over the place, and now she's got a product to solve that problem. Fantastic, right? So disclosure, transparency, shining a light in these these kind of darkish places. Even when you've done the best you can and the work that you could, which is great. Intent is important here. Um, the system says that you've done what you need to do. You're compliant. Great. You're transparent. You're, you've disclosed all this. And now maybe the world can, can work on those challenges. Yeah, that's a huge piece, the transparency on it. And how much do we see that right now, right? I think about <laughs> what, what algorithm or what machine learning model that we're using daily on our whatever it is, like social networks or if uh, e-commerce sites, when do they disclose that, hey, yeah, this model could be biased here or there? Uh, that is something that I think needs to happen. It would be really nice if it did because of the fact that, like you said, somebody around the corner from you might know how to solve that. Just because the 200 people that are working at this gigantic startup or this gigantic uh, company haven't figured it out. That doesn't mean that it's not, you can't figure it out, right? Like you right. still have to disclose that so that maybe there is a way and someone knows and they can help you out. And like you said, potentially there's a product and boom, you've got a new startup and new jobs. And and I would add to that, that if these disclosures were apparent, we would also have market forces, right? If these mm -hmm. disclosures and transparencies existed, I, I use the old, the old philosophical trolley problem, right? The, the, the trolley problem, just for quick summary, is, is um, you know, I, I have a vehicle in motion and I have no choice. I have to hit grandma or the baby. Right. I have no choice. It's, it, it's a silly sort of philosophical problem. And most people are like, well, you'd never have to make that choice. Set that aside. If I had to make that choice, right, if there's nothing else we can do, if I choose to hit grandma, fine. If I have to, have, have, have to, right, and I choose to hit grandma, well, now I need to disclose that, okay? Mm -hmm. And this is what's different, right? Disclose that I had to make that choice. It's coded in the system. It's what will happen. If the marketplace does not support that, 
they're going to move away from your product and they're going to say that is not the right choice. Mm-hmm. And thus we have this feedback loop to, to your point, not only just solving the problem, but it's a feedback loop of if your biases, if your disclosures, if your transparencies, if your safety concerns, if your facial recognition tool doesn't work great for people of color, now we can, and you tell people that, now people can say, I'm not using that service. And oh, by the way, that will kill off your product and you'll yeah. go and fix it, right? You'll go and make a product that works. Yeah, hopefully. Then that was what I was saying is it's a little bit like suicide for the companies that they have their products and they don't work that well. And then they have to disclose that and these market and the market will start voting for other things. And so you're you're going to have a little bit of of pushback, I feel, from companies who don't want that to happen. Definitely. And yeah. yeah, they're they're like, no, I'm good with everything that needs to be known about this machine learning algorithm behind closed doors. Right. We don't need to tell everyone the flaws because then again, it goes into that place of the cybersecurity of, well, if we tell them the flaws, it could be exploited, right? Yeah, it, our, uh, just to be specific, our cybersecurity work doesn't involve transparency, disclosure, tra- you know, that the... the we're not saying, you know, here's the front door. Mm-hmm. Disclosure and transparency comes around processing, comes around, around activity, decisions that the tools are making that might have bias in them or might have an ethical choice embedded in them. Um, so that's where transparency and disclosure comes from. Um, at the same time, the, the requirements on the cyber side will be, you know, have you done this? Have you considered these kind of attacks? Have you examined your service providers to ensure that they have proper security so that you're not Trojan horsing in, you know, the next malicious tool. Mm -hmm. And so um, it it is, the system is thoughtfully considered. I am not going to try to tell you that everybody's going to stand up and clap and say, thank goodness. Um, Thank, you know, thank goodness you're going to make me spend $25 million a year on compliance. You know, I don't know what the number is going to be, but there's going to be people who are going to say this is hard and it's going to cost me something. And I kind of say, I don't care because it's the best for humans. And that's who we work for. And if someone wants to, a government or a regulator wants to come in in the middle and say, this is fantastic. Keep all this, take these three points out. Fine. At least we've done something better for humans than Mm. what we have now. Well, let's jump into the government and the regulators for a moment because I know there's a lot of talk and a lot of movement about how Europe is doing things. And there's the European paper that's coming out. You being based in the States, and as we mentioned before, it's a little bit more of that Wild West mentality. How do you look at that? Is it something that right now, this is a global framework that you're working on, right? It's uh, for humanity, literally. And it's not just uh, for one specific geographic location. So do you feel like in Europe, you're going to see more of an uptick in people who want this or people who are trying to use this because of the regulations that are coming out? Or is it something that you haven't seen yet? I'd love to hear a little bit on that point. Yeah, 100%. Um, Europe is leading the way. Um, they have more of that regulatory oversight. And quite honestly, they've got more um, sort of communal buy-in uh, to, to, to consider these issues, at least at senior levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the work that we do for humanity is a U.S.-based operation, but that's simply because it's where I sat when I started. We have over 175 contributors coming from, I think we're up to like 33 countries around the world. And nice. so we, we do have a global perspective. It's insufficient. It needs to grow. We need more diversity. We need more input from around the world. No question about it. But when we create the frameworks and the criteria that we do, they are jurisdictionally sensitive. We are not legislators. We might propose policy ideas where there is nothing because we're up against the coal face and we see that, that there might be you know, deep fakes is, is a wonderful challenge. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's a scary challenge, something we're very afraid of, something we really feel like we have to protect humanity, humans, mm-hmm. from. 
there are no laws or there's very few laws in place. And so we're proposing new policies and in those kind of places. But most of the time, what we're going to do is we're going to take existing law and we're going to translate it into audit criteria. We are not legislators. What we are is auditors, sorry, audit rule makers. And so what we have to do is we have to take what are sometimes amorphous laws, undetailed, and we have to turn them into the following criteria. They have to be binary. You're compliant or not. They have to be implementable, measurable, unambiguous. And then on top of that, the rules that we draft, the criteria that we draft is consensus-driven. So we don't do 51, 49 majority rules. We just fought about it, shove it down your throat kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The rules we put in place are the vast majority of us think these are reasonable rules. This is a very dynamic marketplace, so we iterate these, these rules constantly, and it is fully crowdsourced. It's not open source. It's not Linux. It's not somebody showing up with a couple of audits and saying, does this plug into your system? If it does, I'd love to consider it, but nobody's drafting those kind of things yet. Um, instead, what we do is we draft the audits and the crowd pours over it. Um, you know, literally hundreds of eyes pouring over each word, each line, each definition that we create. And that's what makes it awesome um, is, is all those diverse inputs and that multi-stakeholder approach. Europe will lead the way. Um, we are working on a GDPR certification actually for the UK. We're, the same certification can apply to the EU member states. We're working on taking it to their local data authorities. And at the same time, we're having conversations in the US with the New York City Council on uh, their, their new law proposing a bias audit for auto automated employment decision tools. And we, um, the, the U.S. Department of Defense, their Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, named us a trusted ecosystem partner in October to help them take their AI ethics principles and turn them into criteria for all AIs and autonomous systems that the Defense Department might acquire. So we're touching a lot of different places. We're growing. We need to grow more. We need to have more touch points. And we want to have conversations with regulators, lawmakers, developers, designers all over the world. There's not a person I don't want to invite into this process. It's so nice to hear. And the inclusion aspect is, is definitely needed. I'm wondering about the standardization of the audits and I think about a world where there are many different frameworks for auditing and how there is going to be this standardization. Do you feel like it has to be standardized? Like there's got to be one audit that everyone, like you said, pours over and really looks at and is critical for. Otherwise, you can get like the easy audits because I know my friend owns this auditing company and he's pretty soft. And then you have the harder audits that are they're cheaper, but it's harder for you to pass. And yeah. that kind of thing can happen and you have the wrong incentives. So is, for you, is it, it needs to be one kind of audit? It, it needs to be one generically speaking, like when we use a term like relevant legal frameworks, ideally everyone would borrow that definition. So there's certain elements of lexicon, of terminology that we do want to be fully normalized. And in a perfect world, we would do our job at For Humanity so well that there would be no need for other audits. Now, that's not practical. We are trying to be a monopoly on behalf of people. And the more input, the more um, participation we can get, the more grassroots we can be, the, the, the more people who are involved, then the more likely that is. Um, but it may not happen. That being said, it's still jurisdictionally sensitive. So, for example, we use something called protected category variables. So protected category variables are the variables about people that impact uh, their personhood. And those are, in countries all around the world, those are enumerated as you can't you know, discriminate or you can't be biased or whatever, but they're different. In the U.S., it's one set of variables. In Canada, it's another set of variables. And they're similar, but they're not perfectly the same. And so what that means is as we develop our work, it does have to be jurisdictionally sensitive. Mm 
It can't be one size fits all for the world because honestly, the protected category variables in Singapore and the UAE are not the same as they are in the US or Europe or, or the UK or wherever. Completely. So, you know, we will try to, but that doesn't mean we don't have the overarching, right? We've got all of the, the rules up here. What this will do is this will show those differences between countries, um, between jurisdictions, and you'll see those differences and it may lead to change over time or it may not, but the jurisdictions will decide that. Do you also see it being something that depending on the use of the different machine learning or AI you will have different regulatory uh, needs. Yes. Like- yeah. So yeah, we so we we have a set of criteria that applies to the the board of directors, the CEO, and the chief data officer. Those rules apply to everything, every AI and autonomous system, and they're kind of corporate wide. But below that, we go autonomous system by autonomous system. So the audits that we create are, are specific to the needs, functions, flows, data, uh, security, uh, all those related issues on a function by function basis, on an, really on an AI by AI basis. That makes complete sense. And so I'm thinking the last question that we got to ask well i have one final question after this but how can someone get involved what can that's we easy. do to yeah be part of for humanity that's easy uh, so uh https for humanity dot center um and there's a registration link on there when someone registers all they're doing is providing email and they're signing a code of conduct that says they'll be a good boy or a girl and behave themselves and once you've done that, you are now a contributor to For Humanity. You can lurk, you can watch, you can become a uh, part of the community, you can dive in, you can say, this is what I care about, how do I help? Um, and then many of those people have grown to become For Humanity fellows. And being a fellow simply means you've demonstrated an extraordinary commitment to our mission. And I hope we'll have thousands of fellows over time. And I hope we'll have hundreds of thousands of contributors over time. So it's easy to get involved. Um, it's not easy because we're humans and we're busy and, you know, we, we've got a lot of things pulling us in different directions. But we'll, we'll help you do that from For Humanity's side of things. We'd love for everyone to be involved, honestly. Well, Andrew mentioned the different workshops that you have going on, like this one for the philosophers. What other stuff are you offering like that? Um, we're really just starting those kind of external workshops. Um, this was actually brought to us by one of our contributors who was part of that, that philosopher's team. I think the success of that will grow into other opportunities like that, but they're, they're not planned currently. And again, well, we really, oh, sorry. you know, Go say ahead. again. I, I was just going to say it's, it's very much like anyone can bring something to the table here. That is true. And then we have existing work groups with channels, projects that we're working on. People can get involved in those. But we're also saying, uh, let's take Africa, for example. Data colonization is a problem. People going in, extracting data, taking it, stealing it, not using it necessarily even for good purposes because the data governance rules in, in developing countries are not the same as they are here. And so these, these large entities are going in, extract. Well, one of the ways that we can help prevent that is by helping take data privacy rules to these, these third world jurisdictions, these developing jurisdictions, and be for humanity there. Um, that requires just commitment and local knowledge. Um, and so anyone can show up and say, I see the work you're doing here. I want to bring it to Tanzania. And I will nice. be like, awesome, let's go, right? So that's, there really is a lot of opportunity to lead and guide from the contributor point of view. And our job at For Humanity is how do we empower? How do we enable? How do we take the tools that we have and, and help advance your mission or the mission of people, of the mission of humanity? Brilliant. All right, Ryan, last question here, and then I'll let you go. Are you a robot? <laughs> I was thinking about this as we as we started the as we started the call. I am pre-programmed with a lot of sort of genetic, you know, responses and so on. But here's the thing: 
I do not think optimally all the time. <laughs> I do a lot of suboptimal things. Um, and thus, I am going to assert for you that I am not a robot. <laughs> I love it. I love that answer. Well, thanks again for coming on here and talking to us about For Humanity. I really think it's brilliant work that you're doing. And I cannot give you enough kudos. I really appreciate it. I encourage everyone listening to just at least go and jump in to For Humanity and get your feet wet. Maybe you become a fellow like Ryan was talking about. That would be great. We need more of this. And you're doing an amazing thing here. So Thanks again for coming on, talking to me about this, enlightening me on some of these topics. And, and really the way that you're looking at this and the way that you're breaking it down is so nice to see because it is so needed in a time where we are in the, well, let's just wait and see what happens phase, right? And now we've done enough waiting and see what happens. And we've seen what happens enough to be like, okay, maybe we should put some, I like to say, we need to put the, when you go bowling and you put the bumpers on. Yeah. Right? At yeah, least get the guard some bumpers. Rails. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Just get some bumpers on this bowling alley, please. That's all I'm asking for. And then yep. later we can figure out the real fine details, but some kind of steps need to be taken. And yes. it's obvious that you are thinking through it, you're dedicating your life to it. And for that, I thank you. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed myself. All right. We'll see you later. Thanks, Demetrius. Thanks, Demetrius.